The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's the Ellis Martin Report. If you stay tuned, you'll hear expert insight, commentary, and potential financial opportunity. Is it strange that companies featured on this program have given us cash money to be portrayed here? No way. They want you to know what's going on. Some of the analyst segments are sponsored as well. Catch us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today I'm visiting with Joshua Young, the founder and portfolio manager of Young Capital Management. Previously, Josh served as an analyst at a multi-billion dollar single-family office in Los Angeles. Prior to that, he was an investment analyst at Triton Pacific Capital Partners. He was also a corporate strategy consultant at Mercer Management Consulting and Diamond Cluster. He holds a BA in economics from the University of Chicago, and Josh is one of the fund managers I see regularly when I attend corporate presentations in Los Angeles. Josh, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's been several months since we've gotten together, and a lot has happened. The resource market, and by that I mean mining, minerals and metals coming out of the ground, has pretty much gone into a big, deep sinkhole. Were you involved in that market at all? Fortunately not. <laughs> you were never really a fan of that market because uh, it's totally speculative. It's It's been all paper, and most of these companies were really not generating any revenue, just burning dollars. Yeah, I think actually the first time we met and then the uh, first time I was on the show, we talked about this, about how I prefer investing in oil and gas companies over mining companies, because especially among smaller oil and gas companies and smaller mining companies, the mining companies, none of them are even close to generating cash flow. And so they need huge amounts of equity to go and drill and figure out if they have resource and then to delineate the resource and then to build infrastructure. And then eventually, once they've done all that, to go and sell to a larger company to develop their mine versus oil and gas companies can go and drill a well. And if the well is successful, they can produce oil, generate cash flow and be at least to a certain extent self-funding. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say like I predicted that the sector wasn't going to work out, but I will say that if you look at how small oil and gas companies have done versus how small mining companies have done, uh, let's look at like the TSXV, both sectors are down a lot, but you know, oil and gas companies might be down 50%, some of them might be down 30%, some of them are up. In the mining sector, everyone's down at least 50%. Some of them are down like 99%. Some of them are down 90%. Pricing is worse than it was in 2009. And this is in an environment where commodities actually, especially gold and silver, haven't done that bad. It's not like gold is at 700. Gold is at 1,500, 1,600. And uh, silver's in the 30s. So, I mean, you really expect that the juniors would be doing okay, but you know the, the market has changed. And I think their business model flaw is showing, and uh, the stocks are reflecting that. Well, gold's pretty much almost the same as it was last year, give or take a $100 an ounce or so. And as you said, the stocks have just not even come close. They've come off quite a bit. I mean, I think really what happened is you had the super major mining companies and the major mining companies that are the potential buyers of assets. And those companies have not been great allocators of capital over the past 5, 10 plus years. 
And eventually those poor capital allocation decisions came to roost and activists got involved in their stocks and their boards got less patient with their executives and people were fired and people were threatened with being fired. And in response, what the companies have done is they've cut back on their capital expenditures. They've cut back dramatically on their acquisitions. They've actually started to sell some of their assets and they're buying back stock and paying out dividends. And so what that did is those were the natural buyers of projects. So they were the buyers of juniors and they were also the buyers of medium-sized companies. And the medium-sized mining companies were the natural buyers of juniors also. And those guys have uh, lost their market and their ability to sell themselves. And so their valuations have come down. And the juniors are in a position where they're not generating any cash flow. The equity market and potential investors know that it's going to be very difficult for them to sell assets because the majors are more or less not buying. And so those stocks, in addition, they were speculative. And now they've gone from speculative to probably many of them being poor speculations because they can't generate cash flow. And the whole reason that they were in existence was to delineate a resource and then sell it. And there aren't really buyers for the resources that they're delineating, at least for now. So I guess what you need to have happen is you need a combination of the resource price to go up and you need costs to go down and you need it to happen on a large enough scale that the large companies or medium-sized companies are that they become buyers again or that private equity or other financing sources come in and the returns are so great from mines that they're unable to turn them down but that definitely hasn't happened yet you know if you look at a lot of these projects they're still 12 to 15 percent irrs which is not high enough to really attract private equity and doesn't provide enough of a margin of safety for project financing on the debt side. So you can look ahead, let's say, five years and not see any of those fundamentals dramatically change and know that there's probably really nowhere to go in the sector. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think that uh, I mean, I'm bullish on gold and silver. I don't currently own a whole lot, but I've been looking and I'm, I'm interested in, in building my exposure. And I think with the, the quantity of, of money being printed and the financial problems across different global economies, different countries' economies, and different, you know, both the sovereign finances and the different economic issues that countries are facing and that the globe is facing. I mean, we're seeing tons of, of money being printed. You, you'll, you'd expect that eventually that money will flow into commodities and that you'd expect much higher commodity prices at some point in the future. So maybe if you saw gold at 2,500 or 3,000 or something, at that point you might see a very different dynamic. That being predicated on, to a certain extent, there being sufficiently low labor costs and sufficiently low diesel prices, or at least better mine processes. One of the things I guess that's that's exciting maybe for the sector, it's uh, painful for current investors, but what's exciting is you're seeing a lot of technology innovation, you're seeing a lot of costs get cut, uh, you're seeing less need for labor, uh, you're seeing less need for diesel, all on kind of a project equivalent basis. So apples to apples, you can see projects getting built more efficiently. And there's nothing like a contraction in an industry to make an industry more efficient. So I do think that some of these projects will eventually get developed, and there probably is value among some of these companies. It's just difficult to figure out exactly which projects are best and probably requires a geology background to be able to figure it out. And that's why you spend most of your time in the oil and gas sector, where things are, are moving along rather swiftly. Now, the capital allocation to begin drilling oil, to begin drilling for natural gas, is it a lot smaller than you might find on a mining project? Sure. So typical mining projects are hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars. In my, my largest position, a uh, company drilling in the Mississippi Lime, they're drilling vertical wells that cost under $600,000 each. 
and uh, including infrastructure costs and everything required to uh, bring the well online, the whole thing costs less than $700,000. So for well under a million dollars, you can be in business and generating cash flow versus hundreds of millions, if not billions, for a mine. So you only need maybe one or two wells, perhaps, to have a successful project, and you can do this for under a million dollars, and how much cash would that potentially generate? So this company, they're drilling wells for $700,000 total, including infrastructure, and they're earning back well over $700,000 within the first nine months. So it's great to get your wells paid out in under a year, and the rest is gravy. They're typically generating another $700,000 or so in the next 18 months, so they're earning two times their investment over a two-year period, and then they, the wells continue to generate cash flow probably to the degree of uh, $100,000 to $200,000 a year going into the future. So you really don't need to drill that many wells in order to build up a pretty significant cash flow base. And obviously it depends on what your ambitions are. So if you were a small private company, you could drill a few of these wells and just sit back and, and collect the cash flows or just a wealthy individual. Uh, as a public company, these guys, they're drilling two wells a month and they're on track to grow significant cash flow. And the great thing is that to a large extent, it's self-funding. They're funding 50% of their CapEx just from their cash flow, just from wells they've drilled in the last two years. So they're really uh, building up a significant amount of growth and a significant amount of cash flow that's uh, self-perpetuating. These projects, they take place in uh, North America? Yeah, this project is in eastern Oklahoma, just on the eastern side of the Nemaha Uplift. And this uh, this company is called the Oztex Oil. It's interesting, they're traded primarily on the Australian Stock Exchange, and their main office is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They actually looks like they're going to uplist to Toronto shortly in the next month or so. And hopefully at some point they'll list officially in the U.S. Unofficially, they're on the OTCQX, but officially they only trade in Australia at the moment. I had a thought while you were talking, and that is about the Toronto Exchange and the Canadian Venture Exchange and all these companies which are, have, have more or less gone south, these mining companies, and effectively almost have become shells. What's to keep them from shifting their focus into energy? Because isn't that what they do anyway? They, they shift their focus to whatever sector seems to be uh, lucrative? Actually, it's funny that you asked that. Today, I got a call from an investment banker in a, an investment bank where they do both oil and gas and mining deals, and they were pitching me on a deal for a company that just recently acquired oil assets. And when I looked up the ticker, the ticker came up as a different name than the name they were pitching me on. And it was a mining name. So you're already seeing this. You're already seeing these guys switch from one to the other. I mean, personally, I would be pretty hesitant to invest into a mining company that chose to venture into oil and gas. I generally prefer to invest into companies that are already in business and have been in business for a while. And I've made the most money investing with people that are already achieving success and where I'm just investing and betting that they're going to continue to achieve success in the same way that they've achieved success so far. So it doesn't matter if they're going to add somebody on their board, which they naturally will do, who has a background in oil and gas. That's just that's just all for show, isn't it? I mean, they can they can completely recreate themselves. So if you take a XYZ mining company and they have some cash left and they have a project that's never yet developed and they decide, hey, we're going to create some value. So they hire a new CEO, a new CFO, and a whole new operations team. They fire the old guys. They replace a considerable part of the board and they use that cash to go buy an asset and start developing it. I mean, I'm not going to be 
prejudiced against the company. I'm probably not going to invest for a little while because I want to see them achieve some success on their own. But over time, there's no reason to not invest in something like that. A resource company like the one that was pitched to me today, where it's the same company essentially, and they just like hired an operations guy and are redeploying some of their cash to go buy oil assets. No, I don't find that particularly attractive. But that is a that is a good question though. It's a it's a funny uh, funny thing how that happens. And actually, you saw you saw it happen a lot post the, the dot com boom and bust, right? A lot of those dot coms <laughs> went and first they they didn't start out as dot coms. They started out at whatever whatever the hot sector was prior to dot com. And then after the dot com boom ended and all these companies were sitting in all this cash, they went and did all kinds of other uh, all kinds of other things. I haven't seen you in six or seven months. Have you made some money? I've done okay. It's been a rough patch as the Toronto Stock Exchange has fallen and as mining stocks have fallen a lot of energy companies have traded down too so definitely it's been fighting a tough tape the good news is that a lot of the companies I'm invested in fundamentally are achieving a lot of success so theoretically their stock should follow the success uh, at the asset level and at the cash flow level but I can't say I'm up for the year unfortunately despite the, the stock market having rallied are you part trader at all? Not really. I'm much more of a fundamental investor. Occasionally on my own, I might like take a flyer on something with some small amount of personal money. But generally speaking, my business is to find good businesses and buy small portions of them, not to trade. So there's been no panic, so to speak, with regard to your investing choices. You haven't sold off. Well, I mean, certain investments have been mistakes and I have sold some of them and others. The stocks have gone down, but the fundamental thesis I don't think has changed. I think that it's important before you buy a stock to look at the company and say, would I still want to own this stock if it was at half the price that it currently is at? And will I buy more if that happens? And it's very easy to lie to yourself about this, but it's a very important step, I think, before buying a stock. And buying stocks is such a funny thing because in everything else in life, if you could buy the same thing for half the price, you do it in a second. If you could pay half as much money for your office space, you do it. If you could buy your car for half price, you do it in a second. But when stocks go down by 50% and everything else is the same, suddenly people just view things very differently. There's a, you know, psychologically, it has an effect. I mean, they'll talk about a, a company that I don't own stock and I have traded it in the past. I have bought it at a low price and sold it at a higher price is Apple. And Apple, you know, was at over, was it, a, I think it hit $700 in the middle of last year and now it's at $400. And it's the same company. If anything, it's actually grown. I think it's grown their its cash flow and earnings by 20 or 30% in between then and now. And the stock was at 700 and everyone in the world loved it and they thought it was the best thing ever. And now it's at 400 or 420 and everyone hates it. And they're dumping it and they're upset with the CEO. It's the same guy doing the same stuff. They have the same products out. I'm not sure they've actually introduced any new products in, in that time period. They won their lawsuits that they were fighting. I mean, it's remarkable. So I I think uh, you know obviously a lot of the people that were buying Apple stock at 700 weren't going through this process and you know not to throw stones I mean you know I've, I've definitely made mistakes and there have been companies where when I bought them and they've gone down I've rethought them but generally it's a good step to do that so with the companies that I'm invested in where they've traded down generally I've been able to be comfortable enough definitely to hold the position if the company itself hasn't been doing badly and in many cases I've been able to add substantially to positions so you know in the in the long run that's worked out for me historically and that's where a lot of my returns have come from was from buying stocks in good companies where the stocks had fallen more than anyone ever expected they would but it's also uh, you know it's painful it's painful in the meantime what's the future of oil and gas in this country where's the light at the end of the tunnel for investors 
That's a great question. I mean, I think the light at the end of the short tunnel that we're in right now is uh, natural gas prices are going up. And as natural gas prices go up, you'll see all these small cap oil and gas companies, whether they produce oil, whether they produce gas, I think you'll see money flood back into the space. Yesterday was a great example. Natural gas prices went up a lot when there was a positive inventory report. There was more natural gas withdrawn from inventory than people were expecting. And there were stocks that were up 20%. And there were stocks that were up 10%. And it was crazy. I mean, some stocks in companies that are going bankrupt were up 20%. So really, that's when you see a junk rally like that, that's the start of potentially of money coming back into the space. So I think, uh, you know, gas right now is at 380, 385. If you see gas go over four bucks, I think you see a lot more money come back into the space. And then you'll start to see additional mergers and acquisitions. And you'll start to see you know, consolidation. You'll start to see more asset level transactions. You'll see more IPOs more secondary offerings, things will really start to pick up and valuations will go way up from where they've been. It's funny, that's exactly what happened with precious metals a few years ago, exactly what you're talking about, which is beginning to happen now. We live in Los Angeles, you and I, and that's where this broadcast is taking place. And what amuses me, and I'm one of these people that has a four-wheel drive vehicle that will never, never take it off-road here. It just won't happen. It's more for show. It's more for the fun of it. LA probably has, Southern California, there's probably more SUVs here where it never snows than in the entire state of Colorado, Wyoming. And uh, (laughs) let's throw in uh, uh, Minnesota all put together. Sure, or Montana. (laughs) Trying to think of a great place where you could uh, really use an SUV and get to go see some great sights. So, you know, Montana came to mind. You know, it's interesting to see all these people still driving around. I think one of the last times we spoke, we talked about how you could kind of tell how expensive fuel prices were. And there's like a rough measure, which is how is the economy doing versus how the gas price is or how high the gas price is. And that kind of tells you what's going to happen with oil prices. So it's actually, I think that measure is pretty bullish. It's the Wilshire Traffic Index. So uh, I guess I'm kind of making that up. If you think about it, it makes sense, right? So gas prices right now are very high. They're among the highest that they've been in a number of years, actually possibly since 2008. And it's not summer yet. And so gas prices could potentially go higher as summer driving season kicks in. What that tells you is that if gas prices are high, especially high this early in the year, and there's still a lot of traffic on the road. I mean, I was just driving earlier today, and it took quite a long time to get somewhere where it should have taken a lot less time. What that tells you is that there is enough demand, there are enough people still willing to sit in their cars and sit in ridiculous LA traffic while paying, what is it, 420, 430 a gallon, which is much higher than where gasoline was six months ago or four months ago. That tells you there's that demand is strong, and that it's not that sensitive, at least right now, to the, the price of gas right now. So the, the elasticity of demand is actually lower than you'd expect, at least in this price range. So that tells you that gasoline prices go higher, and given the uh, scarcity of supply and the increasing demand around the world for, for gasoline and for oil, that tells you that there's a reasonably good chance that gasoline prices may be going up and oil prices may be going up. And we seem to, as a culture and an, and an economy, have absorbed that increase, which bodes well for the economy in general, we can actually maybe say that it's improving if we can absorb all that and the Wilshire traffic index continues to rise. Yeah, perhaps. Although if the gas prices go up too much, you know, you'd expect that that Wilshire traffic would, would start to fall. And then that will tell you that the economy is actually not doing as well as you might have thought. I don't know. I, I guess really what's happening is that there's real inflation going on and that people are experiencing it, that they've processed it, and that they've accepted it. 
gasoline prices are always kind of a funny thing because relative to a household budget, they don't actually make up that high a percentage of a household budget for most households in the U.S. Other things have a bigger impact. Kids' college tuition, rent, taxes, food. food. Yeah, much higher. And people are continuing to spend more and more money on food. People continue to go out more. Restaurants are doing well. And restaurants have recovered post-crash. So gasoline prices, it's more people being very hypersensitive. I guess they get to see the price and they see how much they spend. And it's a regular occurrence for a commodity item. So I guess maybe that's why they're so sensitive. But I think you're starting to see people just process inflation, absorb it and be able to accept that they're paying a little bit of a higher price for gasoline than they were before. Thus, uh, there being still a lot of SUVs on the road in L.A. and uh, traffic is worse than ever. And as always, we're still cheaper than, let's say, Canada or Europe with regard to our gas prices. Yeah, although refining capacity in the U.S. is tightening up, there's a lot of oil production that's going on here relative to the amount of production in the last few years. And so I'm not sure exactly what will happen with refined product prices, but gasoline prices are certainly higher relative to oil prices, at least local oil prices, than they've, than they've been historically. Refineries cannot keep up with the new oil production. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing a lot of refineries uh, maxing out. You're also seeing it on the NGL side, so less of an impact directly to consumers via spending money on their their gas tanks, but more of an impact when people go to light their gas-fired grills in the summer or for heating expense using propane heating. But there's actually been a tremendous increase in production for NGLs, and that's actually reduced the prices of things like propane. So you could actually see your uh, summer barbecue cost you a little bit less money. I understand there is a new shale find here in the Central Valley in, in California. They've discovered a way to drill very, very expensive water wells that produce salt water. Apparently, for the people that are involved in it, they haven't figured out that they can go just a few miles to the west, set up a pump, put a pipe in, and pump out as much salt water as they want out of the ocean. And instead, they've decided they want to drill miles into the ground, spend millions of dollars, up to $10 million in some cases, in order to be able to produce salt water. The Monterey Shale, to date, has been tremendously unsuccessful. It appears the genesis of it was Occidental doing some deeper development drilling and some exploration and discovering some oil fields that may or may not have been from a zone that could be identified as the Monterey, but it does not look like an oil shale of the same caliber as the Bakken or the Eagleford or the Utica. And I think it was way overhyped. And we'll see. I mean, look, I could be wrong. It's a very early stage, and I've been skeptical about other oil plays before that have turned out to be good. But, I mean, I've seen almost no well results that have been positive for the Monterey using horizontal development of the type that companies had been touting in the, in the past. So that's a non-starter, and it amuses you. <laughs> Apparently. Well, I mean, look, I just, when I think about, when I think about the prospect of going and, and blowing that kind of money, it brings me back to Ostex. I mean, I think, okay, I could go, I'm XYZ oil company, I can go and drill a well in the Central Valley, right, in San Joaquin Valley, and I can go and spend $5 million and have, you know, X percent chance of success. Let's say, from my perspective, maybe it's a 25% chance of success. From their perspective, maybe it's a 50% chance of success going and discovering some kind of oil shale where they're going to get 20 or 30% rates of return on their wells and where they can go and create a decent amount of value. Or they could go lease 
in the general area that Oztex is in, lease prices aren't that high. They can go drill a few $700,000 wells. And sure, Oztex's management's really good at drilling low-cost wells. So maybe they cost $800,000 instead of $700,000. And maybe the wells would be 20 or 30% less productive because Oztex has probably gotten better over time as they've drilled more of the wells. But still, even if the wells cost you know, 10 or 15% more, and even if they were 20 or 30% less productive, they'd still double their money on average drilling these wells. So I don't know, I just, I don't see the appeal in going and trying to explore for a new oil shale, particularly in an area where people have been tremendously unsuccessful, when you can go and just do development drilling in an area where there's already been success achieved and where it's just a, a question of operating effectively and deploying capital intelligently. So we're still talking about Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, areas where uh, we're seeing a lot of success right now, Pennsylvania even. Yeah, there's just a handful of states and a handful of areas where there's still relatively affordable land. Actually, this is something interesting that's happened in the last kind of six to nine months. As the junior market for mining companies has fallen apart, the market for leases for oil and gas properties has fallen too. So up until maybe the middle of 2012, the value of a lease, and maybe mid-2011 for gas leases and mid-2012 for oil leases, the value of a lease essentially just went one direction. Unless you drilled a whole bunch of zero wells that didn't return the capital required to drill them, essentially across the board, you saw in the Eagleford, you saw in the Bakken, you saw in the Marcellus, lease prices and transaction prices just continuing to escalate. Eventually, I'm not sure exactly what did it, whether it was Chinese and other foreign national oil companies that were coming in and doing joint ventures and losing huge amounts of money, whether they got tired of losing so much money, or whether it was just a more of a realization by the industry that not all leases are the same, or whether it was the mergers and acquisitions environment slowing down a little bit and there being not quite as many acquisitions taking place by large companies of smaller companies. But whatever it is, you saw areas where there had been transactions at much higher prices. You started to see lease acquisitions and transactions at much lower prices. The biggest one recently was this deal by Chesapeake, where Chesapeake sold half of their production in the midst Lime in Oklahoma to Sinopec. And they sold it at, it was a metric, something like $60,000 of flowing barrel of oil equivalent. And sure, half of that production or more was gas, but it was still a much lower metric than what Sandridge had sold two different joint venture deals at. It was a lower metric than what Chesapeake had shown in their presentation. And it was a lower metric than I think the market had expected for Chesapeake and for the Mississippian in general. I think that might have been a little extreme where uh, Chesapeake's production there was much more gassy than people were expecting and where Sinopec had gotten burned on previous deals in the US and so they were really trying to be careful about the price that they paid. But there's definitely been this trend of transactions happening not necessarily at the peak price for oil and gas leases. And so I think when you start talking about something like the Monterey Shale, really it seems like even if you paid money for Monterey Shale leases, there's an opportunity now to go and, and lease near really successful fields or just go and buy stocks in companies that are achieving success and where the stock price is not reflecting the value created. You know, Going back to, to Oztex from a value perspective, they're putting out their new reserve report over the weekend 
And it sounds like they're going to have, or it looks like just from the wells that they've drilled and the reserves they were able to, to book on their, their last report based on the numbers they had drilled then, it looks like they will have doubled their proved reserves to maybe a $200 million proved reserve value versus a current market cap of maybe $55 million. I mean, there's not a lot of places where you can go and spend $55 million to buy $200 million of proved reserves. And the beauty of the stock market is you don't have to. You can go and spend a million dollars or $500,000 buying Oztech stock and getting a proportionate amount of oil and gas reserves. But it's kind of an interesting situation. So you know, if, rather than going and spending $5 million on a Monterey well, I can go and spend $5 million and buy a whole bunch of Oztech stock and basically look through and get $200 million or so of proved reserves and get a company that's been able to successfully keep their well costs extremely low and show tremendously high returns on invested capital. I am a shareholder. Obviously, I, I do like the stock. It is right now uh, one of the largest positions in my fund. Well, Josh, thank you very much for joining us today on the program. Hopefully, I won't wait six months to have you on again. Thanks. Thank you so much. I've been chatting with Joshua Young, manager of Young Capital Management at home in Los Angeles. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Go to the website right now, ellismartreport.com. The following segment is sponsored by Bellhaven Copper and Gold, a junior mining company with cash to support its current drill program, plus a foundational resource of copper and gold to build upon in Latin America. Bellhaven Copper and Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BHV and in the U.S. as BHVCF. Dudley Baker is the editor of JuniorMiningResources.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Today on the road in San Antonio, Texas. Yes, sir. Good to be with you, Ellis. You're on the road. I'm not. I'm here. This is a fun trip. It's like it's, uh, for most people in the States, you know, it's spring break. Last week, this week, next week, whatever. So my two grown kids, but the four grandkids are all in El Paso, Texas. So when I drive up from Mexico, cross the border, I always come and spend a few days in San Antonio with family here. And then next Tuesday, I'll drive to El Paso and spend a little over a week with all the kids and grandkids. So looking forward to it. It's a great trip. You grew up in Texas, didn't you? Yeah, born and raised in San Antonio. This doesn't have anything to do with the business, but this morning I went downtown, tried to see the mayor, Julian Castro, who was you know one of the speakers at the uh, Democratic Convention. Obviously, he's being groomed, etc. You know, for greater things. One of the good friends down in Mexico has written a book called The Dark Side of the Dream. We have a website by that URL as well now, The Dark Side of the Dream. Pretty cool book on the Mexicans migrating into the United States back around 1940, 1941. Really cool story, so very timely with the what's happening politically in the United States with the you know Hispanic people becoming more of a political power. Whether you're aligned that way or not, I'm, I'm not making a decision whether you're Democrat or Republican here, but just it's just an awareness of what is happening. So it's a pretty cool story with the mayor here in San Antonio. And so I took a couple of books down to be placed in his hand and in his brother's hand that's a uh, congressman uh, already. And so anyway, just kind of a neat story, just planting the seeds for my friend 
back down at Lakeside that wrote the book. So Dudley, when you're on the road like this, I know we've covered this before, but for the benefit of our new listeners, how do you facilitate taking care of your business? I don't suppose it matters where you hang your proverbial hat, so to speak. For me, I mean, I'm always around a computer, and I'm always online watching the news. It's rare that I'm doing much traveling during the day. Now, Tuesday, it'll be a long drive. It's probably a good nine-hour drive from San Antonio to El Paso, so I'll be pretty much out of pocket uh, during that day. But that's very rare that that happens. Normally, anywhere I am at in the world, I've got, you know, internet service and stay plugged in. So it's a wonderful time to have an online business where we can keep in touch with subscribers, do what we have to do, watch the markets. It's really, really cool. But heck, let's get back to these markets, Ellis. What we've got coming up here, if I may, you know, mention here, we're recording this on Friday. Markets are closed. We've got a very tight triangle that's formed in gold over the last couple of weeks. Anybody can see it forming. We're right at the apex of this triangle. Monday may be another really quiet day, but probably by Tuesday, we're going to break out one way or the other, either to the upside or to the downside. So it could be a significant break either way we go, but it's something to be watching for short term. So you're calling for Tuesday, March 19th, as a big action day, up or down? Well, it looks like it. I won't say that I'm the clever guy that found this. One of the many, many, many newsletters and analysts that we follow had this chart the other day, and so I've been following it for the last week or so. And we have just been vacillating right within this triangle, you know, to the upside, to the downside, and it looks like we're coming right here, and it just cannot go past, say, Tuesday. So we're right there at it. We'd love to thank with the all the still negative sentiment that we've got uh, in the gold market that can it get any worse? Could we truly break to the downside? Kind of hope not, but you know, hope doesn't always get us there. It's just a matter of reality. One thing that I've done for a few of the subscribers that have sent me emails recently, I just said maybe if you're looking to deploy some new capital, maybe just wait a couple of more days. Let's see which way these markets break. Chances are, even if we make a move back to the upside here, you're going to have time to come back in. It's just not going to run overnight. But if we break to the downside, then we may fall a bit and give you a much better buying opportunity. I'm taking that advice myself with just a little bit of cash still left to deploy. I think I'm going to wait till Tuesday myself. And, of course, what are we talking about now? Two trading days. Just kind of hang loose here for just a bit. This broadcast is airing on our greater radio network on Monday. So, in fact, this might be a day to let loose of some of that cash that has been sitting on the sidelines, some of those reserves, and deploy it, as you say, in a company or two that you might favor before all the fun potentially begins on Tuesday. Well, it might be. It might be. Like I said, I guess the worst thing that happens is we break to the downside, you know. I mean, we've got so many things that I personally own that I feel good about for various reasons that, gosh, or 10 cents or less. I mean, just companies to me with good projects, some almost have the joint venture model. Somebody else is paying for the exploration on those projects. And I mean, it just seems like no brainers for little old companies. They've just been pounded down to the ground. Even if we break to the downside right now, this could all be relatively quick. Let's just look further out, whether that's months or by the end of the year. Where are we going to be, you know, six months, a year from now or wherever? I think this is where most of us as investors need to be and not get caught up in in this short-term stuff of these markets. I or probably no one else in the business knows exactly what's going to happen. So let's approach this as an investor. We'd love for it to go up immediately. You know, when we buy a stock, it feels so good when it immediately goes up. 
it's uh, that's really cool. It makes us think that we're the smartest person on the planet, right? But we know that doesn't always happen. So let's just you know be patient. We're looking for a longer time horizon. Now that time horizon may be a little longer than we think, but we you know let's say a year, or two years from now is what we should be looking to capture some really significant monies. That's what we're looking to accomplish. We'll be right back. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored by Bellhaven Copper and Gold, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BHV and the U.S. as BHVCF. Columbia is no longer the country made famous by Tom Clancy books. Terrorists have been tamed and corruption has been cleaned up. In 2012, the World Bank cited Colombia as the safest jurisdiction in Latin America for foreign investment. The country is now host to at least seven major mining companies and numerous junior exploration companies, companies such as Bellhaven Copper and Gold. The Coca Belt of Colombia hosts more than 63 million ounces of gold in resources and reserves, and more than 40 million ounces of that has been discovered in the past six years. In a depressed market for resource equities, Bellhaven's quality resources at surface and a world-class gold belt, cash to advance current drilling, and strong management make it both a value stock and a growth stock. Find Bellhaven on the web at bellhavencg.com. We offer expert opinions only. Find them on our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. And we're back. You're looking for the five or ten bangers, aren't you? I'm still looking for home runs on virtually all the stock that we've got. I mean, especially if uh, you know, if we're talking about these pennies, say at ten cents or less, these are the ones that should be easy five times, ten times return. These are the ones that I'm excited about, and I've got a lot of these in my personal portfolio. Now, when you get to some of the larger companies, you know, the producers, etc., it's rare that you can ever find those go up five times. But obviously, a double or a triple. On those, all of that trickles down to these small exploration companies. Small ones obviously are at the tail end, but they're the ones that will eventually get the big kick. And of course, the challenge always with these small ones is, will these companies still be around? And some of the really small ones run out of cash, etc. I know there's been articles written about this, how many of the companies on the venture exchange, you know, have a limited amount of cash right now, and how many may end up going out of business, etc. This is going to be interesting, say, over the next six months or so, how this plays out. I believe that all of our companies will be okay, I mean, that I own, but we always know we could lose one or two. That's why it's always good money management. We never put all our eggs in one basket, and if one or two companies was to blow up on us, it's a relatively small percentage of our portfolio. We don't see that happening right now, but that's always a possibility. You don't take great risks, though. You're a very conservative investor. Well, let's back up what you said there. All of us in this sector are exposed to a lot of risk just by being in this natural resource sector. So we've chosen to enter here. This is just it's just kind of high-risk business here. We're totally out of favor here right now. Our whole sector is. It's challenging times. Yeah, I'd like to say I'm not crazy. I'm here to make money. And net over the years, have made some good money. And it's a matter of still being very smart and allocating our dollars, sound money management. And I know this can be different things to different people. I've probably got a, a, a much larger portfolio than most people could have or could manage. But I've kind of cut off on my service to show everybody my top 40 positions. That's a lot. Just take the top 10, top 15, top 20. Obviously, this is where the significant dollars are within my portfolio. And I'm really comfortable with all those, and I don't really see any of those going belly up. So the risk lies in those that are that are way down the chain in my portfolio. But some of these little ones, 
or even selling for pennies, you know, have that potential to make a discovery to explode from pennies up to dollars per share and can generate some really nice income. Finding those specific ones is, you might say, almost a needle in a haystack. We don't want to get too carried away with this approach, but I've got quite a few lotto tickets, you might say, on some of these small companies in case somebody does hit a home run here. In this market, the smartest investor is the long-term investor, and that means you're positioning yourself, like you said, for when the market turns around, way to get out. You bet. That's the only way I know to look at it here. And if you've always got some producers in your portfolio, I mean, if there's, there's a lot of companies that I own right in the top of my, my, my top holdings that are making money now. So even if the market falls off on us, I mean, they've got cash in the bank, they're making money, they're not going out of business. Yes, the share price is going to drop short term, but down the road, you know, everything's going to come back. I've got a lot of solid companies within my portfolio. Net, I feel like I've got, a, for me anyway, a good balance, a good mix of the producers, you might say high-risk exploration plays, but those are the ones that could generate us some really big dollars at the end of the day, you know, a year, two years, three years down the road. So it's a good mix. Tell us about your website, JuniorMiningResources.com. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We're kind of building, what I want to say, the company, the empire, so to speak. Our new marketing portal is JuniorMiningResources.com. We have a, a great news feed uh, with, with a Twitter at JuniorMiningNews.com. One of the friends does a good job of cherry-picking some really good news, so we don't bother everybody with uh, news on companies, etc., but very specific, broad news that, that we're all interested in for this entire sector. And then, of course, the, the two subscription services that I've got are longstanding now, PreciousMetalsWarrants.com, with uh, all of the warrants that are trading on the natural resource stocks in a database. Everybody gets to see my entire portfolio. It's all allocated out by gold stocks, silver stocks, few uraniums it's all allocated out really really nice there i've got an audio every week so everybody gets to hear my comments i do that on thursday evening and then the other service is the greedy guru which is a little little different approach but basically following the top professionals in the business so basically we follow probably 20 25 different individuals and analysts and basically this is their top picks got that uh, arranged really good so out of the thousands of companies actually the greedy guru has worked it down to where we've got roughly 20 companies so it makes it pretty simple truly the top picks of the pros well dudley again it's always a pleasure to have you on the program please drive safely and give my best to your family be my pleasure thanks ellis i've been chatting with dudley baker of JuniorMiningResources.com. Listen to the segment again on the podcast page of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. This segment has been sponsored by Bellhaven Copper and Gold, a junior mining company with cash to support its current drill program, plus a foundational resource of copper and gold to build upon in Latin America. Bellhaven Copper and Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BHV, and in the U.S. as BHVCF. We follow those that like to be followed. Follow them yourself at ellismartinreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of Alkane Resources, trading on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Alkane has significant assets of zirconium in its Dumbo Zirconia project with rare earths and rare metals, and then gold in its Tomlingley Gold project, as well as copper in New South Wales, Australia. Ian, welcome back to the program. 
Hi, Alice. It's uh, nice to be talking to you again. Since we've last spoken, Alkane has had two significant news releases. The government of New South Wales has granted you that mining lease that you were waiting for. It's a new government, isn't it? And then you have an update on construction at Tomlingley. You expect to be producing gold by the end of the year. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. I mean, it certainly was a, a long process to get the mining lease approved, and you, you're right about the government, although they did change about uh, two years ago, but like all new governments, they take a little while to get things sorted out, but yes, we finally had the mining lease granted, and uh, that's enabled us to push the button to go. Uh, we virtually started the construction work immediately after we got approval, and relatively short timetable to get the project up and running, so by the end of the year, so certainly in December, we'll be commissioning the plant and should be fully producing gold uh, sometime early in the new year, so it's going well. Any chance that can happen sooner? I'm sure you're being conservative by saying you expect to begin producing gold by the beginning of next year, allowing yourself some extra time, but if you already have shovels in the ground, who knows? Yes, it's, um, I'm always a bit cautious. Uh, the engineers assure me that's the timetable and uh, I have to be guided by their opinions and uh, yes, it'd be, it'd be great to do a shorter timetable, but I think realistically it's still about probably 10 months, 11 months to construct and then get it up and running. Now from what I read, you're extending your mine life at Tomlingley from 7 to 10 years, is that true? Yes, it's heading in the right direction. Uh, just recently, and along with the mining lease approval, we've announced some drilling results from a, a new prospect inside the mining lease area, which is good. It's very close to the existing infrastructure. But it's another deposit we call Coloma 2, just because it's located near the actual main Coloma deposit. And we've generated some quite spectacular drill intersections. Uh, some we announced yesterday was a metre at 821 grams, and if I convert that for you, it's about probably three and a half feet at 26 ounces. So you can appreciate that's a quite a spectacular intercept. It, it's certainly the best we've ever had in the whole of the Tomlingley Gold Project where we've been drilling now for sort of eight or nine years, so it's nice to see a spectacular result, but supported by many, many other good results also, which uh, just helps the overall sort of future of the project and extending it out, as you said, from its sort of seven-and-a-half-year life out towards the ten years, which is what we always targeted. That's almost an unbelievable amount. I don't see that too often. Look, it's, I like to say it's not that uncommon when you're dealing with gold and uh, every now and again you do pick up one of these spectacular intersections a drill bit just happens to go through a very rich patch in the ground but it'd be nice to say you could do it regularly and end up with some quite spectacular average grades across the deposit but it doesn't happen all that that often but at least as i said the supporting other drilling intersections we're getting are supporting a, a fairly good project there but um, that's still a way to go before we can sign off and say what the resource is and what the mineability of it is did you take any photographs of the core? It's actually from what we call a reverse circulation drilling, so that uses a hammer hammering into the ground, so the sample comes up as sort of fine powder, but the geologist who was uh, logging the material at the time said he was a bit taken aback because at first of all he thought it was something like pyrite disseminated through the crushed sample, and then he looked closely and realised it was gold, so that's pretty unusual in my experience just to see gold, in particularly in a reverse circulation type sample, is very unusual, but it it's quite clear there, apparently. But no, to answer your question, sorry, we, we didn't take any photographs. We probably should. I'd love to see them. You can almost take that right to the smelter, can't you? You could probably sieve the sample and, and then make some money just out of the residual gold with those sorts of grades that are 26 ounces. In that sample, in today's gold price, you've got several hundred thousand dollars. Not bad for a day's work, I guess. It'd be great, yeah. Just love to think you could do that all the time. Instead of having a mining operation, a processing facility, we'll all get out there with our shovels and uh, dig our way to glory.
That's almost how it was done back in the Old West in the 1850s here in California. No, absolutely. I, th- I think worldwide the prospector activity and you know, the one in 1,000 or one in 10,000 prospectors that made it good probably had one of those situations where he, he sunk his shovel into something quite spectacular and, and made his fortune. So uh, unfortunately we tend to be a bit more systematic these days and do things and sp- spend large amounts of money getting large deposits and building large processing plants and doing all that, but uh, perhaps the good old days sometimes are better. Well, no matter what the share price seems to be for gold stocks right now, you're headed into production. You'll have a market for that gold right away. That will bring revenue into the company. Not many juniors can say that at the moment. No, absolutely, Uh, and you're right. I mean, it was always the target with this project. We knew it was never going to be a large gold operation, but at 55, 60,000 ounces a year, it'll generate something like 30 million a year cash flow. Uh, And if we do push it out from the seven and a half years to 10 years, that's a a nice, consistent, steady stream uh, of income. It keeps us out of the need to go back to the market all the time to to keep generating funds. So uh, it'll be a very good, and as we call it, a a bread and butter business for us while we look towards to developing the, the bigger Well, we have a depressed market, so to speak, for precious metals, although compared to several years ago, bullion is still indeed high. We're seeing elevated prices for platinum and palladium. Car sales are up here in the great state of California, the world's eighth largest economy. In fact, they're booming. This has to be a great sign for companies slated to produce base metals, rarers, rare metals, zirconium, and a host of other minerals. The economy may be turning around here in the U.S., Yes, I mean, that's certainly the vibes we're getting also. We're hearing that there certainly are some, some signs of life and starting to rub off through the consumer profiles and what's coming out. And as you're right, I mean, across the board, the metals that we're interested in, mainly the zirconium and the rare earths, have been really quite low for 12 months now. They've, they've taken a real hammering. But it's very important going forward to see the U.S. economy rebound because there's no doubt it's, it's one of the most important economies in the world. And you're right about things like vehicle sales. I mean, one of the main major uses of zirconia is that it's a ceramic that sits in the car exhaust system. It's that bulbous thing down towards the back end of your exhaust and that uses about half a kilo of zirconia ceramic and it's an integral part of the emissions minimisation. So we're very happy to see car sales starting to pick up because that'll flow on back into the guys that manufacture the auto catalysts and hence come and consume zirconia which we produce. So it's all good to see and it's all good to see a little bit of, I guess, vibrancy starting to come back into the world. You haven't really experienced any sort of recession in Australia, have you? No, but it's been mixed. The politicians love to talk about a two-speed economy here, and they've got the general mining industry, the resources sector, is really booming along and has been for five or six years. The manufacturing side of the country has been very depressed. We have great difficulty competing with Asian imports and those sort of things. So that's taken a bit of a hammering. So I guess overall, though, the country's come out pretty well, really supported by the resources industry. I do shudder to think what it would have looked like had we not had that very vibrant resource industry. So everything that you'll be producing will go offshore? At this stage, yes. We really have a very limited market here for what I call these exotic metals, the, the sort of things that go that they're made into. The Australian manufacturing industry is quite small. We've traditionally tended to, to buy things in from, from the US, China and Europe. And so that's where our product goes. It goes off to where those metals are consumed. And in a sense, no matter what the economy is doing around the world, all of that offtake is spoken for in advance isn't it? It is. Uh, Certainly we're still working on the zirconium side particularly because we've changed our strategy slightly. We were encouraged two years ago by a large Asian group to look at producing a product called zirconium oxychloride and the reason for that was that China 
currently supplies about 90% of the world's uh, zirconium oxychloride and this particular partner was seeing rapid escalations in price, restrictions in supply. So they came to us and said, look, you've got a very large resource that's not related to zircon, which is the, the normal precursor to oxychloride, and would we look at it together with them to develop a, a new source? Now, we've gone down that path, but at a point now where in the last six months we've seen that the zirconium oxychloride, really the price, the demand for it collapsed dramatically. And so we've now reverted back to our original concept, which is to produce other zirconium chemicals and the zirconias particularly, the, the high purity zirconia which we produce from our standard flow sheets. So that's the only area where we probably changed our model in terms of sales in the last six months. But things like our niobium, we're very close to signing the final stages of a joint venture to produce ferro-niobium and sell to a European alloy manufacturer. And then with the rare earths, our deal with the, the giant uh, chemical company in Japan, Shinetsu, is progressing very, very well. And that's a I still consider that the most exciting development that we've done with the Dubbo Zirconia project, just guaranteed to take our output of the two light, the light concentrate and the heavy concentrate and then produce all the individual separated rare earths and then have Shinetsu buy the, the area that they have interest in and, and leave us with the remainder to sell. So it's a very good result. It takes out for us the risk of having to develop uh, a rare earth separation flow sheet and also the additional finance that would come with capital cost to, to build that plant. So we're very comfortable. Everything's going along quite well. Uh, the project is still on schedule for uh, approval late this year or early in the new year and then productions of late 2015. So it's all going the right direction. We're looking at a potential mid-tier company with Alcane, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, really... When you look at Alcane in, say, 2016, 2017, we'll be generating cash flows in the order of uh, 250 million Australian dollars a year from Dubbo Project, another 30 million a year from the Gold Project. So, you know, we'll be in that spectrum of 250 to 300 million a year, and that certainly will change the character of Alcane and set it up to be a strong company going way into the future. Now, it's quite obvious that I'm talking to the president of an Australian-based company, and this is an overseas interview, but Alcane actually trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY at pretty much a ground floor share price. I'm speculating when I say that, and you would be too. But the opportunity would be now to really capitalize on your investment as a new shareholder. Of course, there will continue to be opportunity as you roll out into production. But again, the best opportunity is probably right now when the market in general is potentially very undervalued. I completely agree with you. Yes, we believe we've got to the bottom. Uh, we've really had sort of downward trend now for six months on the Alcane share price, and it's been bouncing around that level now at around 60 cents Australian. That on the OTC would be uh, probably six dollars, uh, but it's been bouncing around that level now for some time. And when you look at the assets the company's got, I mean, just in cash and our tradable shares, uh, we've got something like 45 cents of value there. So if you take 45 cents from from 60 cents, and then you look at the value and the, the Tommingley Gold project and the enormous value in the Dubbo Zirconia project, it's a very cheap price at this point in time. I guess that's one way to summarise it. And there's no reason not to speculate that when eyes and ears get back into this end of the sector again. You could be where you were a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. A $26, $27 a stock here in the U.S. Yeah, correct. I mean, that's right. I mean, basically, that's what we think. We understand the market dynamics and, and there's a lot of concern. And uh, I guess people get very conservative in these type of markets and look more at risk factors. And, and the risk factors that will apply to us are genuine. We've got two years to get the, the 
main project up and running, so there's two years to go, and who's going to be sure what happens in that time? But really, the, the downside to the alkane value right now is pretty small, and the upside is enormous, and certainly we would believe that sometime going into the new year that the company should be significantly re-rated. Well, the fact remains it's basically supply-side economics. You have the supply, the demand is always going to be there, and the supply may never actually meet the demand. And there's really nowhere to go but up. That's something you can't say, but I'll go ahead and say it. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I'll I'll agree with you then. Well, Ian, once again, it's been great having this conversation with you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thanks very much, Alice. Appreciate it, as always. I've been chatting with Ian Chalmers, the CEO and Managing Director of Alkane Resources. Alkane trades in the U.S. under the symbol A-N-L-K-Y. Listen to this segment again on the podcast page of our website ellismartreport.com and download the Ellis Martin Report in its entirety on iTunes. You've just shared part of your life with the Ellis Martin Report. Remember, this is actually one of those paid programs where companies and individuals hand over cash to people like us to let you hear all about themselves. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 